I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Good morning, Los Angeles, and welcome to another edition of the Weekend Warrior Show. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Clapper. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at Cedar sinai 32 years. I'm so excited for today's show. It's a great topic. It's all about writing, and my guest at 815 is my favorite writer, Known him for 30 years. Big television writer. But now he's writing mystery novels. And he has a new one coming out. And we're going to talk about it at 8.15. The great Scott Shepard. And it made me think all week about writing. Because the reality is, is writing is really seeing. It's just that some people have the gift. And that's what it is. Of being able to put into words what they actually can see. Everyone in this town thinks they're a writer. The hell yeah. Every restaurant, every waiter, waitress. What are you doing here? Oh, I'm from Nebraska, but I have a screenplay. Everybody thinks they can write. But it's not so easy to do it well. And Scott Shepard is the best of the best, and we'll be talking to him at 8.15. But it made me think all week about... Who impressed me as a writer in my life, in the world of art, in the world of sports, and in my life of surgery? Well, with these 100-degree temperatures, the heat wave we have now, it made me think about someone from 60 years ago who wrote a TV show about what we're going through right now. And his name was Rod Serling. And the TV show was The Twilight Zone. Listen to this episode introduction from 60 years ago. The word that Mrs. Bronson is unable to put into the hot, still, sodden air is doomed. Because the people you've just seen have been handed a death sentence. One month ago, the Earth suddenly changed its elliptical orbit. And in doing so, began to follow a path which gradually, moment by moment, day by day took it closer to the sun. And all of man's little devices to stir up the air are no no longer luxuries. They happen to be pitiful and panicky keys to survival. The time is five minutes to 12, midnight. There is no more darkness. The place is New York City, and this is the eve of the end. Because even at midnight, it's high noon, (laughs) the hottest day in history, and you're about to spend it in the twilight zone. 
a television show about scaring the bejesus out of you because the sun is getting too close, which is exactly what climate change is. 60 years ago, Rod Serling saw it and knew all about it. Wait till you hear his story about writing, the craft, and his technique. It's fascinating as a skill set. It's like talking to Kobe Bryant or Michelangelo about their craft. Well, what about in sports? The Phoenix Suns, Chris Paul, what a story, right? Well, in the world of sports, it's a gift to be a great sports writer. This week, the NCAA is crumbling because of this NIL name, image, and likeness. Listen to my favorite sports writer from 10 years ago, Frank DeFord, just when the Twilight Zone is coming around in the 59 to 1964, Frank DeFord in 1962 joined Sports Illustrated. Serling and Frank DeFord are pretty much starting at the same time. Both were the greatest writers in my lifetime, one in art, the other in sports. Listen to Frank DeFord from 10 years ago telling us what actually happened this week. The NCAA is a cartel, first of all. That's, that's, it's, it's simply uh, OPEC uh, of sports. And it's run for the benefit of the schools and the athletic directors and the coaches. Um, it pretends to care for the athletes, and it doesn't. Um, as a matter of fact, you, you may be interested to know that the word student-athlete was created for a reason, uh, not to have anything to do with academia, but if, if you could name somebody a student-athlete, then they could never sue for workman's compensation. That was the reason that it was created, and that's, that's the thinking of, of, of the NCAA. Look at that. Listen to Frank DeFord break down the words student-athlete and teach you what it really means. This is a man, the best of the best, and I want you to hear his story and how he felt about the craft of writing in the world of sports. In the world of medicine, yes, I've written three books with Lindy Yui, but I want to tell you a story about using words that I did when I was an intern, when I had to buy a car and I had no money. I ended up with a Subaru station wagon. We will get to that story later in the show. Clapper Vision is going to be about Sarek from the Phoenix Suns tearing his ACL without contact. How does that happen? Clapper Vision is going to be about how that happens. And it'll involve pulling your car into the garage versus pulling your car into a Native American teepee. Clearance in the garage versus no clearance trying to park yourself inside a teepee. We'll do that a little bit later in the show when the clinic is open. And food. Where is writing when it comes to food? Ah, I had one this week. I slept my poor wife at 8 o'clock at night. They closed at 10 o'clock because I remember this place in L.A., They may have a menu. They may take your order. But you know what they do to give you the greatest chili dog in Los Angeles? And we talked about pinks and we talked about cupids. I know them all. But I'm going to tell you about a place that's so special in L.A. and it's been around forever. 
because when they take your order, they write your order on the cardboard box that you're about to eat from. It's fantastic. And I'll tell you where that place is for the best chili dog because the secret that they do that no one else does is they put, my mouth is watering already, they put a big fat slice of a beefsteak tomato on the chili. Why would you do that? Oh, they have like their own farm where the tomatoes come from. And the tomatoes are in season right now. Who knew to put a tomato on a chili dog? But they write your order on the box. Can't wait to get into that. But let's get into writing. The craft of writing. Here is the great Frank DeFord being interviewed by the editor of Sports Illustrated, Terry McDonald, about Frank DeFord, the greatest sports writer's story. Sports writing, um, I won't say it was nefarious, but it certainly was looked down upon in, in, in many respects and had been for a long time. Sports writers wrote differently than other writers. We were always called scribes, and we wrote in convoluted way and used different language. Hmm. Sports writers tended to be homers. Um, I mean, they even named a stadium in San Diego after a sports writer. Can you imagine that today? Nowhere in the world would you do that. And there was a lot of um, under-the-table payments. I mean, there was a lot of crookedness in sports writing. Hmm. You had a, be- a boxing match coming to Austin. Well, I shouldn't say Austin or anywhere. Uh, <laughs> you would slip a little money to the sports writer, to the sports editor. It was that kind of business. It was just a little bit shady. And, um, and I came in at that time when it was becoming respectable. Hmm, interesting. About the same time Rod Serling is writing The Twilight Zone. And I must say, um, a large part of that respectability was because of the uh, creation of Sports Illustrated in 1954. That, that gave it uh, a cachet that it had never had before. Now, the sun was up. I came in eight years later in 1962, and it was becoming a little more respectable profession. Now, listen to Terry McDonald give you an example of Frank DeFord's writing and his thinking about the craft of writing in sports. This is what Frank wrote in um, Everybody's All-American in 1981. He's talking about being a natural. That it is the natural part of being a natural athlete, not that you are capable of performing naturally, but that you are natural in accepting the fact. Frank, right? But, the, but the, the rap on Frank was that he was a natural writer. And this drew um, many, many reactions, actually. And I can't wait to ask Scott Shepard, are you born as a writer, or is it something you can develop? I knew I was a natural. And, and I, I know that sounds vain, but sometimes you, you are blessed and you're given a gift. And I always follow that up by saying, how many natural athletes I knew who blew it, who, because it all came so easy, didn't work hard, didn't build on that natural gift. And so that prodded me, Terry. I knew that I had been blessed and could write. He knew he could write. It is God-given. 
And I've met a great many writers who were not natural, who succeeded tremendously. So it's, it's not like, well, you've been given the key and now you open the door and go through. There are a lot of people who didn't get that key who had to bang their way in. And once they got in, they wrote better than some of the guys with keys. Here's the best part. It's really not about the sports. If you're a writer, the topic almost doesn't matter. You just have to do it very well and tell a story. You know why Rod Serling, which we'll get into in the next segment, wrote science fiction and mystery? Because in the late 50s and early 60s in America, you couldn't talk about segregation, bigotry, fascism. These were hot-button topics that nobody was interested in. And if you wrote about them, you weren't going to get your show on. But if he had a robot or an alien being held out of a job, people got a kick out of that. So he could tell his stories through science fiction and mystery and the Twilight Zone, and nobody bothered him. So he secretly got his message across. Well, Frank DeFord is about to tell you, I may have been a sports writer, but I could care less about the sport. I never wanted to cover the games. I was lucky that I had to for seven or eight years. It was wonderful. The, the excerpt that you used this, this week, Sports Illustrated, is about the NBA. And to have to cover it and, and to, to be in the locker room and, and to, you know, sort of to be not just a kid but the private first class, to be sitting there and, and to, to get to know athletes and to travel and, and do all that, I'm glad that I had uh, almost a decade of it. But at that point, I knew I couldn't do that anymore. I did not want to grow old as Mr. Basketball, you know, who knew all the facts and all the figures. I never cared about that. And who gave him that inspiration? Well, the editor of Sports Illustrated, Andre Laguerre. Big deal, a big deal. Listen to what Laguerre told him when he said to Laguerre he was getting married. When I told Laguerre that I was going to get married, we were standing at the bar. I was making $10,000 a year, a lot of money in those days. And he put his scotch down and he said, oh, Frankie, that's the worst news I've heard in weeks. <laughs> 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 a real romantic. And um, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a $3,000 raise if you don't marry her. <laughs> that's 30%. And, Oh, that's hilarious. He said, kid, it doesn't matter what you write about. All that matters is how well you write. Boy, that, that meant the world to me because I think all of us wrestled with, is writing sports serious? I mean, are you throwing your life away just going to games? What, uh, what are your grandchildren going to say to you? Uh, did you cover the civil rights? Did you cover Vietnam? No, I was at the Stanley Cup. You know, you, you worried about that. And he said that to me one night. And it, it, meant, it meant a great deal that all that really counted at the end of the day was how well you wrote something. And that's exactly what Rod Serling did in The Twilight Zone. And coming up next, we'll get into it. Wait till you hear him say how easy it is to come up with an idea 
but actually to sit down and put it on paper, you begin to bleed. It literally takes something out of you. These are the best of the best. These are the writers. But really, they should be called the seers. They see stuff that the rest of us just don't see. Coming up next, we'll get into it. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Holy emoji, clap man. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Holy slip disc. That's right, Robin. Hear listeners talk about their aches and pains. Holy hamstrings. Along with Doc's clapper vision. Breathe deeply. And advice to callers. On your toes, Robin. So like, follow, and enjoy. A wise decision. The Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Frankly, I can think of nothing more stimulating. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's going on? It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. You know who the biggest fan of this show is? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Me! Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. <laughs> on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Paperback Beatles, paperback writer. Mm, I don't want to even interrupt that song. They're so good. My guest today, 15, is a writer. It's a gift. It's a craft. But it's also all about seeing. And I thought all week about the inspirational writers in my lifetime in the world of art, the world of sports, and the world of surgery. In the world of art, there was nobody better than Rod Serling, who created and wrote The Twilight Zone. Here again is Rod Serling. The word that Mrs. Bronson is unable to put into the hot, still, sodden air is doomed, because the people you've just seen have been handed a death sentence. One month ago, the Earth suddenly changed its elliptical orbit, and in doing so, began to follow a path which gradually, moment by moment, day by day, took it closer to the sun. And all of man's little devices to stir up the air are no, no longer luxuries. They happen to be pitiful and panicky keys to survival. Hmm. The time is five minutes to 12, midnight. There is no more darkness. The place is New York City, and this is the eve of the end. Because even at midnight, it's high noon, the hottest day in history, and you're about to spend it in the twilight zone. 60 years before we're first figuring it out now, He's talking about climate change. 
No one wanted to listen to it 60 years ago, but he did it with robots and aliens. The craft, the gift that was Rod Serling. Tragically, he only lived to be 50 years old. But I want you to listen to a Michelangelo of writing talk about the craft. He's sitting down with a bunch of college students 60 years ago. Ideas come from the earth. They come from every human experience that you either witness or have heard about, translated into your brain in your own sense of dialogue in your own language form. Uh, ideas are born uh, from what is smelled, heard, seen, experienced, felt, emotionalized. Ideas are probably uh, in the air, like, like little tiny items of ozone. That's the easiest thing on earth, is to come up with an idea. And the second thing is, the hardest thing on earth is to put it down. Who was it uh, that said, writing is the easiest thing on earth? He said, I simply walk into my study, I sit down, I put the paper in the typewriter, and I fix the margins, and then I turn the paper up, and I bleed. And I bleed. It takes a pound of flesh from you. It takes something from you. It's like birthing a child. When you sit down to put it down on paper. Listen to the college students going, Fellini was an artist and a writer. He, he didn't care about the audience. Why do you care about the audience? Fellini, when he makes a film, he doesn't care whether anybody ever sees it or not. Truly? Is that a quote from Fellini? That's a quote from Fellini. Is that right? Interesting. I wonder if that really doesn't play a hob with the function of an artist. If indeed you can say that I create for my own sake, my own edification, my own titillation, and to hell with anybody else, is that truly a gauge of art as a form? Because isn't art a shared experience? Isn't the excellence of art dependent on a reaction from the outside to someone's work? Hmm. Isn't there a risk you run if you preoccupy yourself with audience reaction at the expense of either your own integrity or your own artistic judgment? Uh, I'm, I'm convinced that 90% of the writers who walk around laying claim to the honored sobriquet of writer are thinking in a sizable portion of their mind, uh, will they love it in Des Moines? Will they understand it in New Orleans? And consequently will deliberately prostitute and write downward to, to what they believe is the lowest common denominator. And when you start to preoccupy yourself, I think you're in trouble. This is not to say that I, I wouldn't share the Fellini feeling, if indeed that's the way he thinks, that I will write only for dirty old Rod, and that which pleases me must please you, and if it doesn't, to hell with you. What about his technique of how he does it? Do you make notes and outlines and characterizations and plot outlines and things like that, or do you just take off and write? I take off and write out of a sense of desperate compulsion. I always write as if uh, I'd just gotten my x-ray from the doctor on Monday. <laughs> and he'd best check with the insurance man and see whether or not the house is free and clear. I always write with a sense of desperate urgency. Now, I don't think this is necessarily a preoccupation with my own demise, Doris. I think I'm good for another 18 months at least. But I, I always write as if, gee, get it down. Hmm. Now, other writers, and many fine writers, and many writers finer than I, I might add, are very craftsmanlike, meticulous, uh, delvers into into structures, scenes, costumes, autobiography or biographies of their people. They have everything seen down in note form. 
before they begin. They also have a very good idea of the sense of if it's a play, their acts. If it's a, if it's a novel, their chapters. I don't at all. I just have a rough sense. Mm. Now I'll take you through actually a, a story for the Twilight Zone. I went to the show on the Twilight Zone about a guy who makes a bet that he can keep quiet for a whole year. Now I did not realize it at the time, but uh, there was a short story called The Bet, and I think a Chekhov sh short story, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, that's one where he was locked in the glass that's right. room in the yeah. men's club. That's right. Yeah. He constantly talks, and a fellow says to him, "If if you keep quiet, and and are willing to." you know, uh, be under observation so we know you don't talk and not say a word for one year, I'll give you 50,000 pounds. Mm. And he says, great, because he desperately needed the money. So they put him in this glass room. Do you recall this story? Mm -hmm. And uh, he doesn't say a word. And the only and the, there are two switches to this story. Number one, the year ends and he is let out of his glass room and in truth he has said not a word. But the guy who made the bet with him despite the fact that he's a member of the club, doesn't have 50,000 pounds. He doesn't have five pounds. Hmm. And here is a guy who's remained silent for an entire year to win a bet, and the guy can't cover, can't honor his bet. I love how he uses the word switches, where the story takes a turn. And then the second switch is that our talkative one is so talkative that he really didn't believe that he could stay quiet. So he had his larynx cut, his sound, his sound uh, box. So you have the double irony there. Now, if, for example, I pose the problem to you that there is a talkative ones amongst us and, and somebody makes a bet with him that he'll remain silent for a year, can you fill up a story this way? What happens? Mm. Now back to Chekhov. I'm going to give you the Chekhov line now. There's a sh altogether shallow, talkative, big mouth klutz who makes this bet. In the Chekhov story, he goes in and for the first time in his life has a kind of an enforced serenity. There's nothing he can do because talking has always been a sort of force majeure. That's all he could do properly. He begins to read. Do you recall the story, Doris? No. And after 12 months of reading, the classic literature of our time, he comes out the most well-rounded, the most beautifully thoughtful, sensitive human being who ever lived. He knows Thoreau, he knows Socrates, he knows Moses, he knows the word of God, he knows the word of the ancients and of the angels. And he becomes an altogether incredibly well-rounded man. That's the Chekhov story. Interesting. Writing. Being a writer. Just like Frank DeFord says, I was a natural. I knew it. It's a gift. This is Rod Serling's feeling about being a writer. All writers are born and never made. The talent to recreate in language, the experience of life, is, has to be God-given. On the other hand, uh, we can sharpen the wit of a writer. We can point out style to him. Uh, we can uh, use the criteria that is age old, 3,000 years of theater, uh, that he can utilize to make a judgment on the value of his own work. Uh, we can show him what can move people, what can move human beings. He can go to see a play of Dyer Van Frank and that's lesson one in the long facet of the human emotion. The great Rod Serling. It's God-given, and then you just have to use it. In my own life, 1983, fresh off the boat from New York, 
I land here in Los Angeles. I don't have any money, and I'm going to be starting my training as an intern in surgery. I get an apartment four blocks away from the hospital because if I buy a cheap car, which is all I can afford, if it breaks down, I could at least still get to work because I can walk to work. And I go and buy a car. All I know is Japanese cars in 1983 are better than American cars. And if I need reliability, I'm getting a Japanese car, a used one. This is 1983. There's no internet. There's no Google. There's the LA Times classified. That's where you found a car for sale, a used car. And I need a car because I'm in LA. New York has subways, mass transportation, and it works very well. Not here. The cheapest car I can get, the biggest bang for my money, was a Subaru station wagon. You got to remember, in 1983, God bless Subaru, I never even heard of this car, but I knew it was a Japanese company, and it was a station wagon, and it was cheap. It was $1,200. I remember going out to Pacific Palisades. Who can imagine all these years later? I think it was a rabbi's wife I bought it from. And I buy this car for $1,200, a Subaru station wagon. Can I tell you something? I was right. This car was the most reliable car you'll ever have. Hello there. Oh, my God. Didn't take any gas. I could drive all over. Never had a single problem with this car. And now you're saying to yourself, why is Dr. Clapper telling us a story? A show about riding. And he's talking about a Subaru station wagon. Well, let me tell you. I drove this car for a whole year. But here's the problem. I got to go back to New York to finish my orthopedic training at the hospital for special surgery. So I'll be back in Manhattan with subways and buses and mass transportation. I don't need this car anymore. But I need money. So I decide, okay, I'm going to now sell this car. What's the chances I'm going to find someone else like me who's going to want to buy a Subaru station wagon? Nobody's buying a Subaru station wagon. Not in 1983, except me. So I put an ad in the LA Times, because that's how you sold a used car in those days, for a Toyota station wagon. Because everybody wants a Toyota station wagon. No one wants a Subaru station wagon. Talk about being a rider. Yeah, it's a natural gift. You're born with it. So I put the ad in, $2,000, because I'm also Jewish, uh, to get more money for this station wagon, which was a fantastic car. And I figured the way I wrote this ad, people will call, which they did, because getting a Toyota station wagon for $2,000 is a great deal. Damn right. But every time the phone would ring, hi, I'm calling about your Toyota station wagon, yours truly would say, well, it's actually a Subaru station wagon, but you know, all the Japanese cars are the same. And people would go, no, they're not. And they'd hang up the phone. They did it over and over. No, they're not. They hang up the, finally, I got one guy who said, yeah, I think you're right. Let me come see it. He came over. He got in the car. I said, I love this car. I wish I didn't have to go back to New York. I'd still keep it because I'm probably a pretty good salesman, as you can tell. He bought my Subaru station wagon for $2,000 because he didn't care that it wasn't a Toyota. Writing. It's a gift. I don't know if other people would come up with that kind of a gift. But I did. So I totally understand what this world is like. This is in addition to the three books I've written about hips and knees and all the research articles I've written. But actually using words 
It's really seeing the world differently. I never lied. I told him straight up what it was. But how do you use words? That's the craft. That's the gift. And it's true. You're born with it. Just like Kobe Bryant was born with all that talent. But to actually hone that craft and that God-given gift, you then become a Rod Serling, a Frank DeFord. Coming up next, the clinic will be open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. We'll do some clap revision with the stars, the warriors, but more importantly, the weekend warriors. Let me tell you the kind of surgery I did this, this week. On Wednesday, someone had a partial knee replacement. It failed. You know why? Because they needed all the cartilage to be addressed. That surgery was so complicated. It took me twice as long as a typical surgery. I'll take you into the operating room. Coming up next, the number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Weekend Warriors on Facebook. Didn't you get the memo? Quickly hear Clapper's crazy kitchen stories. Easily find different callers' aches and pain issues. Right, I get it. Search Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Who are you again? Voila! Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. This is Keyshawn in the morning. My man, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show starts your Saturday morning. Join the doc from 7 to 9 a.m. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Google the Guggenheim. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Staring at the blank page before you open up the dirty Good job, Steve Paulette. All right, clinic's open. The number's 877-710-ESPN. What a great week I had in surgery. I want to share it with you, but let's do some calls because all the lines are lit up. Let's go to Javier. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Doc, how are you doing today? I'm good. How young are you? What do you do for a living? I am almost 38, and I'm a realtor. Nice. Where are you from? Simi Valley. Where did you go to high school? More Park. What's your father do for a living? He is a salesman. What is in he HVAC. In HVAC. Air oh, air units. conditioning. Nice. Yep. Nice. How come you didn't go into that? Uh, I went into sales. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Good for you. All right. Are you a Laker fan or a Clipper fan? If you're a Clipper fan, I'm hanging up right now. No, Lakers all That's the way. That's right. God bless you. All right. How can I help you? What you do to yourself? I tore my labrum again. I called about two years ago with a right labral tear. In your and, shoulder or um, your hip? Got some, uh, shoulder. Okay. And I got some good advice from you to not have surgery and rebuild the muscles, which I did. Good. And my right uh, labrum is fantastic. Feels great. Good. 
Uh, unfortunately, I got heavy again, and I dislocated my left shoulder um, and recently got an MRI, and it looks like another labral tear. But I do have the MRI in front of me here. All right. Do me a favor. Let's go to the impression of the MRI report. Read it slowly so that I can interrupt you with some clap revision. Go ahead. I have findings and conclusion. Just no. Go to impression. Okay, you can do conclusions. Yeah, maybe your, maybe yours is from Chalapetsis uh, Yugen, uh, some other location. My mother used to always say that it's from Ch- <laughs> like where, where is Chalapetsis Yugen? She, you know, it's this faraway place. For some reason, your MRI doesn't say impression; it says conclusion. So go ahead, start reading. All right, it says an acute depressed hill sax fracture right. of the humeral okay, head. Okay, so I'll stop you right there. When, when a radiologist uses the word hill sacks, it means, so let's do a clap revision. Your shoulder is like uh, a golf ball, the ball side, the humeral head, sitting on a golf tee. That's the glenoid or the socket. And there is a rubber gasket, a rubber ring that literally goes around the top of the golf tee. It's almost like watching a hockey game, right? The, the skaters are on the ice, but to keep the skaters from dislocating Uh, The hockey players into the stands, they have 90 degrees to the ice. They have the boards and then the glass. So that's that rim around the the flat skating rink. Well, the golf tee is flat like a skating rink. And the wooden and glass boards that go around the hockey rink, that is a rubbery, rubbery structure. Same stuff your ear, your nose is made of. And that's called the labrum. When the ball dislocates... When that hockey player breaks the wooden board in the glass and goes flying into the stands and hurts a fan, for example, they dislocate into the stands. The ball falls off the tee. It dislocates. How does that happen? You rip the labrum. You tear the wooden boards or the glass. So the location of where the labral tear is the key. If it occurs at 6 o'clock, if the, if the socket is like a clock, 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock, you're going to dislocate. If it's from 3 o'clock to 12 o'clock, uh, it's, it's just a tear and it won't dislocate. It could be painful. A hill sax lesion is when the golf ball falls off the tee and now the sharp edge of the golf tee digs into the ball. And we will see that digging in, that divot, and it's called a hill sax lesion. So that means you're dealing with a labral tear that leads to a dislocated shoulder, not just the run-of-the-mill labral tear like Kobe Bryant had, and I'm just trying to think who else in their career had labral tears. It'll come to me in a second. But those are the tears that can wait till after the season to fix. So go ahead. All right. So uh, with circumferential labral tear, most likely represents chronic macro instability with acute anterior dislocation, relocation injury. Gotcha. Okay. So basically they're saying even though, Javier, you didn't know you were popping your shoulder out, it was actually moving quite a bit. You're so big and strong, you were able to contain the ball in the socket until this episode occurred. So let me give you some good advice. If you're an 18-year-old calling me and you have a dislocated shoulder as a first event, the data from the Mayo Clinic and big centers where we look at big numbers of people who dislocate their shoulders, what do we learn? And I've been doing this for 32 years, so what have I learned after, you know, 100 patients a week and doing this for 32 years? I've learned 
that you're probably going to keep dislocating it if you're a youngster, if you're 18, you're 20. I still like to treat you without surgery, but the chance of it continuing to come out are great. Maybe 85, 90% chance it's going to keep dislocating. But when you're a 40-year-old, I'm not saying you're old, but trust me, the wheels are going to start to come off the wagon. <laughs> At Cedars-Sinai, we like to say you're getting altacocoritis, which is kind of like chalapetsis yogan in terms of location. But you have a benefit, Javier. There is actually something terrific about getting older. You know what happens when we get older? We get stiffer. And if you look at the data of a 40-year-old who dislocates their shoulder versus an 18-year-old, it flips. There's only a 15% chance it's going to keep dislocating, meaning everybody has to calm down. You need to do what I told you for the other shoulder. Let it rest do your range of motion, you do your strengthening exercises, and you have a very good chance, in my opinion, of avoiding surgery. And I'm happy to tell you to have surgery. I do it all the time for dislocating shoulders. But you better fail conservative treatment. But here's the thing, Javier. Stay away from shots. I don't want them giving you cortisone shots, stem cells, p- platelet-rich plasma. Whatever, whatever the needle is, you say no. Because it's just taking money out of your wallet, in my opinion, and it ain't going to really make a difference. But getting it to heal and getting you stronger at a a 40-year-old, you have all the odds in your favor. All right? Great. Thank you, Doc. Okay. Now, listen, you're a total stranger, Javier. I want you to find a total stranger today. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me. Absolutely, I will. All right, God bless you, and thanks for being a loyal listener. You want to take one more call before we go? All right, let's do one more. Who we got? Roy, you're on with Dr. Clapper. Thanks for calling. Oh, awesome. Hey, Dr. Clapper, how you doing? I'm good. How are you, Roy? How young are you? What do you do for a living? Oh, hey, I just turned 40. Uh, I sell <laughs> antiques at a flea market. You don't have day. to sell them, Roy. You are an antique. Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, buddy, so... um. I feel like I got, like, tennis elbow or joint pain, but it's, like, put it this way, like, I could, my lateral movement, like, if I take a 5 or 10-pound weight and do lateral raises, I, yep. I really have trouble doing it with my right hand. Yeah. Um, Are you a righty or a lefty? I'm a lefty. And yet your right arm is what hurts. Yeah, like, three joints in the bones on my uh, on my right hand when I bend my... I guess they call it tennis elbow, but I don't know what it is. It's, All right, let's fail. Let, let's let's try to make the diagnosis you and me together, okay? So take your your sure. arm, palms up, uh-huh. okay? Palms are palms facing up. up. Okay. Your okay. elbow. Does it hurt on the thumb side of your elbow or the pinky side of your elbow? Um, I don't feel any pain right now when I do this. Well, when it hurts, though, when it hurts is the location on the thumb side with your palm up of the elbow or the little finger side. The reason is thumb side, so that's the lateral side. So you, because if it's on the little finger side, it's a golfer's elbow, a medial epicondylitis. It's a whole different story. You have a tennis elbow, a lateral epicondylitis. So here's the deal. I don't want anybody giving you cortisone shots or stem cells or PRP. No needles into your elbow, please. All right? People do it. They're entitled. That's their feeling. I like being holistic. And it is not an inflammation like everybody says it is. It's a degeneration. It's because you turn 40, and here's a clap revision. The way the muscle attaches to the bone is like two pieces of Velcro coming together. 
under the microscope, that's what it looks like. We call them Sharpie's fibers. That's how the, the muscle attaches to the bone. It goes microscopically into the bone itself like the Velcro. You've ripped the Velcro apart, and it bleeds oh. microscopically, and it hurts. My favorite way to treat this without surgery, without shots, and I do it very successfully, takes about a month. It's not going to happen in a week or two, is to get yourself a three-pound or a five-pound dumbbell, hold the dumbbell with your forearm on a table with your palm down. Now I want you to extend your wrist holding the dumbbell. Believe me, you're going to hurt right away in your elbow doing that. Put the weight down. Just do it until it hurts maybe just a couple of pumps an hour or two later go do it again do this lifting the weight up extending your wrist with your forearm being supported on a table you do this four or five times during the day i promise you the blister becomes a callus you'll be strengthening the muscles around the elbow and you will not need an operation if god forbid it persists yeah, you need an x-ray, you'll need an exam, and you may need an MRI, but I would be extremely optimistic that the pain goes away, takes about a month. How's that? Okay, so so just to rewind, uh, rest, I could rest my elbow on the table, hold a five-pound weight, and just do extensions? Yes, with your uh, wrists, and it'll hurt right away. Put the weight down, and then a couple of hours later, revisit, do it again. Do it four or five times during the day, and uh, it's not uh, going to be right away, but you'll get stronger, and that will not only get rid of the pain, but it'll keep it from coming back again. Thanks, Dr. Clapper. You're one of my favorite people in the world, and I, I really love listening to you well, thank every you for, weekend. Uh, and I'm, you are a godsend for sure. Thank you for the kind words. It's, uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to know that you're out there listening. I really appreciate it. You find a total stranger today. You do something nice for them, and you'll say, I'm doing this because Dr. Clapper sent me on a mission. How's that? We'll, we'll do, no doubt. Okay, thank young you, man. God thank bless you. Wow, what a beautiful call. All right, let's take a break. We'll pay some bills. Coming up next, I may have to tell you, in the world of writing, who writes down your chili dog where they're going to put a tomato on top of it, but the key is they write the order on the cardboard box you're about to eat it from. Only in L.A., and they've been around forever. When you bite into that hot dog, it pops. The casing or whatever it is, it's so delicious. Mmm! I went there this week. The hell with the diet. You got to have one of these dogs, but I'm going to tell you where to get it. And the number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show every Saturday morning. You, me, and the great Steve Paulette. Just what are you getting at? Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Like this. Medical advice from Cedar sinai head of orthopedic surgery. Are you kidding? With a far rockaway attitude and a little drizzle of mozzarella. Well, it's important to me. Search Weekend Warrior in the space bar. Like this. And click on Doc's picture. I see. Like, follow, and enjoy the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. It's John Ireland. You know there is no better way to start your Saturday than with the man who replaced Michael Thompson's hip, Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Hey, Robbie. 
Do you like donuts? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I love donuts. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. If they asked me, I could write a book about the way you walk and whisper. <laughs> well, look, rhymes with both. I could write a preface on how we met So the world would never forget And the Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. <laughs> That's the great Ella Fitzgerald. Wow. I was reminded of that, you know, when you get married, you take the uh, the man's last name. Traditionally, everything's uh, out the window nowadays. And I always remember that joke from the Catskills. Actually, from Rowan Martin's Laughing, I think. The great George Schlatter who produced that. If Darth Vader married Ella Fitzgerald... The kid's name, or she would change her name, Darth Vader, Ella Fitzgerald. Her name would now be Ella Vader. <laughs> Every time I hear Ella Fitzgerald, I think of her becoming Ella Vader. Dr. Clapper. She could actually marry Darth Vader. Just have to take the mask off for, uh, for the wedding ceremony. You know, when you get married and you're Jewish, you know what you got to do? Probably most of you don't know this. But we have to step and break on a break a glass. And it makes this pounding sound. Everybody's got to hear the glass break. That's how the couple starts out in the world. They got to break the glass. So they put the glass in a paper bag. Because otherwise the, the glass goes everywhere. And for my wedding, I wanted everyone to hear that glass break. So you know what I did? When I got married, I didn't just use a glass like everybody else. I put a light bulb in the... You know what it's like when you pop a light bulb? Let me tell you. They heard that glass break in Lawndale. And I got married in Brentwood. I don't even know where these places are, by the way. Just kidding. Just throwing them out. You get on the 10 and you go east. You'll hit all these places. Dr. Clapper. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Coming up at 8.15, my guest, Scott Shepard, is a writer. And we're going to talk all about the craft, the art of writing. We've been talking about Rod Serling. We've been talking about Frank DeFord. And writing is all about seeing. And remember, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. And speaking of seeing, you all saw the Phoenix Sun Sarek land, no contact, on his leg, limped off the court torn anterior cruciate ligament. That's a non-contact ACL tear. How does that happen? Why does that happen? And why is it so common now in football, basketball, soccer? It's an epidemic. I am doing so many ACL reconstructions now. It's a beautiful thing to see the weekend warriors coming into my office, but I do feel bad. The good news is we can fix them well, and in my opinion, you should use your own body part, not a cadaver. But that's my own opinion. 
But it's because, and here's the clapper vision, there is a space in your knee, in your femur, the thigh bone, which is where the ligament, the ACL begins. It diagonally crosses the joint and attaches to the shin bone, the tibia. Not north-south, but actually goes from Maine to San Diego. That's, it's a diagonal ligament. And that diagonal lineup is kind of like your shoelaces that are crossed. Cruciate in Latin means cross. But you need room in the bone for the ligament to live. And so my best clapper vision is most of us, we have a garage, which is a rectangular shape. You pull your car into the garage. There's plenty of clearance to the walls on either side and the ceiling because it's a rectangular shape to your garage. Plenty of room for your car to go in. But what if you didn't have a garage-shaped rectangular? Your garage was shaped like an A-frame, like a Native American teepee. Well, you, can't, you don't have clearance. You can't pull your car into a teepee. It would bang into the walls that are triangular now. There's no clearance. Well, many of us, especially women more than men, but many of us men are born with a notch. The room in the bone for the ligament is not rectangular like a garage being rectangular, but is like a teepee. And those folks, men, women, athletes, and weekend warriors, you just have to gently twist your leg and you literally will have the bone snap the ligament. So it's very important that when the surgeon does your surgery to reconstruct your ACL, that they carve out, it's called a notchplasty, and turn the A-frame into a rectangular-looking garage so that there's plenty of clearance for the new ligament. Because if there isn't, guess what's going to happen? It's going to tear again. You need to make room for the ligament inside the joint itself. That's key. And as far as going into the operating room today, What a great week I had. Busy, busy, busy. Did 10 hip and knee replacements this week like I usually do. 10 to 15. This week I did 10. And on Wednesday was a particularly challenging one. It was a woman who 10 years ago, someone else, not me, did a partial or unicompartmental implant in her knee, telling her, well, you just have a pothole. The whole road is not shot. You just have a pothole, so let me just resurface this one area. But the reality is is she has arthritis behind her kneecap as well. It's a very much ignored part of the arthritis in the knee by many doctors, which I don't understand. Yeah, you have the big toe side, the medial side, the lateral, the little toe side, the lateral side of your knee joint where the femur meets the tibia. But everybody forgets the third area in your knee, which is the cartilage behind your kneecap, that you need to get up from a chair to go down a flight of stairs You need that cartilage behind your kneecap. And if you just resurface the pothole on the medial or the lateral side of the joint and you're 50 years old, you're going to end up like this woman 10 years later. I've now got to take all that stuff out, which means there are now divots in the bone from the previous surgery. And it makes, I did it, but it makes it much more complicated of an operation Whereas if you had the whole knee taken care of 10 years ago, you wouldn't be in my office for have, to have me redo it. So it sounds sexy, and there are occasional patients, I do unicompartmentals, partial 
But you better be careful. You better be the perfect person where there truly is pristine cartilage behind the kneecap and in the other compartment. And it truly is just a pothole in one spot. Then it's indicated to do a unicompartmental. But if there's any chance or any damage in any of the other areas, then don't say yes to that operation, even though it can be sold to you as being easier and sexier and all. You know what? If it sounds too good to be true in life, it usually is. Coming up next, I'm going to tell some stories, stories about writers in art, in sports that have really touched me in my lifetime in preparation for my guest at 815, who can actually listen to some of those sound bites. And I can't wait to hear what he thinks when Rod Serling says, when I sit at the typewriter, I begin to bleed. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Right, King James? Absolutely. And good to be courtly friends on the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. I love it. Be treated like medical royalty with Clappervision. Clappervision. Feast like a monarch on Doc's delectable finds. There we go. And that far rockaway jester humor. <laughs> Search Weekend Warrior and click on Doc's regal picture. Cool. <laughs> Sound the trumpets. No cortisone, alchemy, or leeches here. Everything's good. Bow, curtsy, like, or follow the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. That makes me happy. Cheers.